If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn to John chapter 11? We're going to be looking at the last part of the chapter of 11, beginning at verse 45 and then into chapter 12. encourage you to bring your Bibles if you're not in the habit of doing that, just to follow along with us and to kind of mark things in the margin on occasion as you pick up something that maybe you didn't know too. I'd like to read the first part of this, uh, beginning at verse 45. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Shall we pray? Father, as we think about these events in the life of Jesus, they have meaning for us today. Not only in terms of what Jesus accomplished in his death for us, but also the examples that are set as we look into the next chapter. And I pray that you would help us to learn from the devotion of those who follow Jesus and that we would show that same kind of character and courage in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The response to the raising of Lazarus was sudden and dramatic. Because of this miracle, John tells us that there were many who put their faith in Jesus Christ. They saw this tremendous miracle and they came to believe that Jesus was the one that he claimed to be. The Son of God, the Savior of the world. And yet at the same time, there were those who were angry over this miracle. There were those who went to the Pharisees and told what had happened. And they began to plot his death. It's astounding, isn't it? That they would have such a strong reaction to this miracle that they would want to put an end to Jesus' life. It's interesting, too, that they did not deny that a great miracle had taken place. They were simply more concerned about themselves and their position. Their hearts were hardened, and they refused to believe. Well, John highlights these two responses to Jesus 
by telling us about two meetings that took place shortly after the resurrection of Lazarus. One was in Jerusalem, the other was in Bethany. One was a response of hate, the other was a response of love. And what I'd like us to think about this morning is not so much which camp we are in. You know, I would hope all of us would say that we are in the camp that loves Jesus. But what I'd like us to think about this morning is, what does it mean to love Jesus? And how do we show that in our life? Let's take a look at this first meeting that took place in Jerusalem. The response of hate toward Jesus. John tells us that some of those who witnessed this miracle went to the Pharisees, and in verse 47 he said that the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And we've heard about the Sanhedrin before, but maybe there's some details about it that you are not aware of. The Sanhedrin was the highest legislative body in Israel at that time. It was made up of 71 members on this council and they could be divided into three categories. Among the Sanhedrin were the high priests, men like Caiaphas and Annas, and there were others who were in that kind of priestly category. Some think that there may have been an executive council of perhaps as many as ten who were kind of the power within this ruling Sanhedrin body. And these individuals generally were Sadducees. Now, you remember about the Sadducees, they did not believe in a resurrection, any resurrection. And so here, this news of a resurrection of Lazarus is something that they would probably just write off. It couldn't have happened. These men were wealthy. They came from the aristocracy in Judea. And they were also collaborators with Rome. They wouldn't be in this position of power without somehow having figured out how to cooperate and get along with Rome. They were shrewd men, and they could be ruthless. And they were not going to let some upstart young rabbi ruin their position of power with Rome. The second category were the elders. And this was a major category or a major group in the Sanhedrin, It represented the priestly and the financial aristocracy. They would also include laymen in this category, men like Joseph of Arimathea, a man who had significant wealth, who had positions in their country. And it was this kind of feel of these elders that gave the Sanhedrin the feel of a modern parliament, of many different individuals that were a part of it. And then the third category were the scribes. These were the most recent members of the Sanhedrin, and they were mostly Pharisees. These would be professional lawyers trained in theology and law and philosophy. Now imagine this group meeting together, 71 men. These were the, quote, holy men. These were the best of the best in Judea who met in council that day And yet what an evil counsel it was. They met that day to conspire to put to death an innocent man. Rather than affirming what Jesus was doing, how He taught the truth, how He spoke God's Word, how He performed great miracles among the people, rather than affirming that 
they met to condemn an innocent man. All because of their fears for their own position and power. What's even more ironic is that these groups didn't even like each other. I mean, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were rivals for power in Israel. They hated each other. They had different religious beliefs. And yet here we find them united in their opposition to Jesus. Why? Why did this happen? Well, let's listen in to the debate as John gives us a look at what was going on there in their discussions. In verse 47, they said, What are we accomplishing? You know, we've tried to silence this guy before. Nothing's working. We've tried to squash out this movement. And here this man is performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were afraid of Jesus' rising popularity. They were afraid that it would lead Rome to act and Rome would overthrow their nation and they would lose their place in power. And then Caiaphas spoke up rather rudely as the Sadducees had a reputation for that. And he spoke up and he said, you know nothing at all. Really what he's saying here is, you idiots, you just don't know anything. Don't you realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It is expedient that one man die for the people. You see, Jesus' guilt or innocence was not the issue here at all. The issue was Rome and political power and their own influence. It was expedient that Jesus should die. How many decisions are made like that? If you think of in all the years of human history and all the times that innocent people have been put to death. So often it feels like it's not about what's right or wrong. It's not about guilt or innocence. It's about who's in power or who has the best lawyer or who is most popular or what is expedient. And that's the way this decision was being made. Caiaphas spoke better than he knew that day, though, when he said that it was absolutely necessary that one man die for the people. It was necessary, but not in the way that he was thinking. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus, God's Son, the Holy One, would die for our sins. There was no other way that we could be redeemed, for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to do it. All of the countless offerings that have been made for centuries could not accomplish our salvation. Only Jesus could. And it was necessary for him to die. That's why John adds this note in verse 51 that Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, for all the Gentiles, for you and for me, he would die to bring them together and make them one 
people of God. That's why He came. That was Jesus' mission. And so from that day on, John says they plotted to take His life. The leaders had reached a point of no return in their decision, and they now issued an arrest for Jesus. They issued a warrant, excuse me, for His arrest. And that's why John tells us that Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples for a time. This village was located on the edge of the Judean wilderness. And he would stay there until just before the Jewish Passover. He would die on his time, not theirs. At just the right moment, he would lay down his life for us. And we see here a glimpse that when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, that most popular of feasts, when many would come to Jerusalem to celebrate it, they came early that week. They came so that they could be ceremonially cleansed and ready to observe the Passover. And so the crowds would come early and they're milling about and they're talking and they're wondering, is Jesus going to come? What do you think? Will He be here? You know the Pharisees are looking for him. You know that there is a warrant for his arrest, don't you? What do you think? Is he going to come? Silence as to Jesus' whereabouts would be complicity. And it could bring judgment. Perhaps that is also one of the reasons why Judas arranged to betray Jesus. Both out of fear and out of greed, as we shall see. Well, let's take a look at the other meeting that took place at that time. A meeting that took place in Bethany that shows us quite a different response. The response of love to Jesus. I'd like to read for you verses 1 to 11 and then come back and comment on it. John says that six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Six days before the Passover. That means it was the Friday 
before Holy Week. On that Friday, just before the Sabbath, Jesus returned to Bethany. And here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. It was really a banquet to say thank you to Jesus for what He had done. From the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, we learn that this dinner took place at the home of Simon the leper. Maybe they were watching. The Jewish leaders were watching Lazarus' home or where Mary and Martha lived, and so they chose to meet at another place. They met at the home of Simon the leper. We don't know anything about him other than his name. But we do learn some things about him from what he did here. You know, it's very likely that Simon was one of the lepers whom Jesus healed. Was he the one who returned to give thanks out of the ten? Probably not, for that one who returned was a Samaritan. And it seems here that Simon is obviously living in Judea and was probably a Jew. But what we do know was that this was a very courageous thing for him to do. You know, here this warrant had been issued for Jesus' arrest. The authorities are looking for him. Allegiance to Jesus could get you in trouble at this time. And Simon the leper showed his love for Jesus by opening his home and identifying himself with Jesus. Simon the leper can be a role model for us. Sometimes just identifying yourselves as a believer at work or at school can be a courageous thing to do. There are times when as a student, identifying yourself as a Christian, whether it's in the classroom or just among your friends, can sometimes have others look at you differently. Sometimes there are students that will want to tease other students or put them down for their faith in Jesus Christ. And you can take a stand for them and make a diff- you can take a stand for Jesus and make a difference in your school. And by your example, when you take that stand and you speak up for Jesus or you choose to live for him or you honor him in the way you go about your work, other students will be encouraged to, to be bolder in their faith as well. Sometimes in the workplace, when conversations turn to subjects that aren't appropriate to be talking about, and you, by your life and by your witness, jump in, and you say something that turns that conversation in a more positive direction, you can be a witness for Christ. By your honesty, by your integrity, by your ethics that you bring to the workplace... You can live for Jesus and be an example for Him, just like Simon was being in this example. We also see something in Martha's example. John tells us that Martha served the dinner. Here, even though it is at Simon's home, Martha was acting as the hostess and the cook, if you will, for this meal. And if you think about it, I mean, if Jesus was there with the twelve disciples and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there and Simon is there, there's at least 17 people for this dinner and probably many more that have come to join in this banquet. And Martha was using her gifts and was in all of her glory because she was able to serve Jesus in His honor. 
I believe that something had changed in Martha's life. There was a time when Martha was so worried and bothered about things, she was an anxious person. And Jesus saw that in her. And when Jesus corrected that and confronted her with her anxiousness, her fretfulness, He wasn't saying to Martha that you need to have the same gifts that Mary does or you need to be just exactly like your sister. No, He was correcting her heart. And He was saying, Martha, don't be anxious. I want you to trust Me. And don't let the busyness of life keep you from Me. You know, when I wrote those words in this sermon, I was convicted in my own heart. Because there are times when I struggle with that too, when life is so busy that it's easy not to have the time that you need to in your quiet time. Or to rush through those things. Or to jump right into your day and just move into it and all the activities that you had to do. And you maybe haven't taken the time that you should to pray and start your day with Him. You see, Jesus was correcting Martha. But He wasn't discounting her gifts. And Martha showed her love for Jesus by serving a meal in His honor. And what a blessing that is. You know, I don't think you would have wanted Mary to cook this meal. She probably had different gifts. But Martha, she knew how to do a dinner. And she reminds me of some of the uh, men and women in our church who work behind the scenes in so many different ways with their serving gifts. And we come on Sunday morning and the church is clean or it's picked up or there are bulletins prepared or there are things that are neat and all ready for us to come so that we could worship Christ this morning. There are people who work behind the scenes in the nursery or with our children so that you can listen today. And not be distracted by that. I think of all the times that I've been at camp. And I think of those men and women who worked in the kitchen and who served behind the scenes. Did you enjoy those meals when you were there? What a blessing it is. You see, each one of us has something that we can do to honor Jesus Christ. Simon, by hosting this dinner. Martha, by cooking and preparing the meal. Mary is another example for us. John tells us that Mary took a pint of pure nard and poured it on Jesus' feet. In Matthew and Mark, if you read those accounts, you'll see there that they emphasize that she poured it upon His head. And I believe that both is quite possible here because it was a large amount of perfume. And sometimes the writers chose different details because of their theological emphasis. John was emphasizing here the preparation for his burial and the humility of, Jesus, uh, and humility of Mary in what she did here. You see, spices and ointments were expensive because they had to be imported. And they were often actually investments that people had. It was a way to uh, put your money into something that was small, it was portable, it could be easily sold on the marketplace. And so she had put her investment, if you will, in this fragrant perfume that was extremely valuable. John tells us that it was worth nearly a, w- a year's wages. How much is that? Well, of course, it depends upon your salary, but if you compared what it was then with today, it would be at least 
15 to 20,000 and maybe much more. It was a lavish gift that she freely gave to Jesus. It might have represented her entire life's savings. She gave it to him. Not only did she pour it out on him, but she chose to wipe his feet with her hair. Maybe she had heard about or seen the woman who had wiped Jesus' feet with her tears at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And maybe she said, someday I may do that too. It was an act of humility because, for one thing, a woman wouldn't let down her hair in public, but also because to wipe the feet was servant's work. It was not expected of the host. It was something a servant would do. And Mary was willing to do that for Jesus. Mary showed her love for Jesus. In humility and generosity, she gave Him all that she had. And when Mary got up from wiping the feet of Jesus with this fragrant aroma, everywhere she went, she carried that fragrance of Christ throughout that house. You know, it's a picture of what we are to do too. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 that we are the aroma of Christ in this world. Both to those who are perishing as well as to those who believe. To one it is the fragrance of life, to the other the fragrance of death. In contrast, we see a brief look at the heart of Judas Iscariot who objected to what Mary did not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And we get a look at his character that shows up here. And I make this comment, that to the heart that does not know God, worship seems wasteful. To those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, they don't understand an act of worship like this. They don't understand why people would go to church. What a waste of time. They don't understand why people would give in an offering. What a waste of money that could be spent on your pleasure or your other hobbies or interests. Why would you do that? Judas didn't understand because his heart wasn't right with God. There's an interesting kind of side comment I had as I was thinking about this. You know, do you think Jesus knew that Judas was dipping into the treasury. I think so. I think he knew everything that was going on. And I wondered, well, why didn't he correct that right then and there? You know, God doesn't always act that way. Sometimes he lets us go our own way. But that doesn't mean we're getting off or that consequences won't come. And you know, in this world, there will always be some who will take advantage of the generosity of others. It might happen with a benevolence fund. It might happen with an offering or a gift that you give. But don't let that stop you from giving. For God sees and He rewards and He blesses those who give. And those who take advantage or those who are a thief or dishonest, God sees that too. And in His time, He will deal with those things. Fourthly, look at Lazarus. In verses 9 to 11, we see that a large crowd came to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. Lazarus was a powerful witness for Christ. We have no record of any speeches he made, 
But can you imagine the questions he was asked? <laughs> Lazarus, what was it like on the other side? What did you see? What did you think? What did you feel in that place? What did you hear? What can you tell us about heaven? Maybe Lazarus couldn't say much, just like the Apostle Paul's experience. There weren't enough words to describe it or to tell what he had seen. Maybe all he could say was, I once was dead, but now I am alive. I was blind, but now I see. Lazarus showed his love for Jesus by being a witness for Christ by his life. And his witness was so powerful that the chief priest now wanted to kill him too. You know how sin grows? At first it was one man who needed to die for the nation. Now it's a second who also needs to die. But I look at these individuals, Simon and Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and I see how each of them was a witness for Christ in their own way. We can be that kind of witness too, if we will trust Him. I ran across the story of a man named Jack Martins. He's a minister in San Francisco who marches to the beat of a different drummer. He's not ordained as a minister and he doesn't preach from a pulpit. But he is a minister nonetheless. Just ask the over 10,000 students who through the years have passed through his classroom. You see, Jack Martins is a band teacher in San Francisco to 12, 13, and 14-year-olds in the inner city. Most of the kids he worked with come from broken homes. About 50% are on welfare. About that many also have English as a second language. He works in a school district, like many, where funding to the arts and music has been cut. But for 33 years, he has loved those students. He's taught them music. He's taught them that they are capable of something beautiful in our world. He's a real-life Mr. Holland, if you've ever seen the movie Mr. Holland's Opus. And although he keeps a Bible and other Christian symbols on his desk, it's his interaction with the kids that gives his witness a melody line. He stays after school, he talks to kids, he listens to their problems, and he helps them with their fingerings. Jack Martins is not a fictitious character. He's a committed follower of Jesus Christ who views his secular work as a sacred call. What will you do with Jesus? You know, I think that's the question that the Sanhedrin was asking. They asked it in the way that Jesus was a problem, and what are we going to do with him? I think the better question for a believer to ask is what will you do for Jesus? What will you do for him, to serve him? And how will you show your love for him in your life? We don't have to be someone else. We just need to use the gifts that He's given to each of us to encourage, to give, to serve, to teach, to show mercy and love, all for Jesus. Just like Simon the leper, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for that truth that we don't have to be somebody else. We just need to be who we are with the gifts and abilities that we have. And we can use them for your honor and glory. Help us to see our work as a sacred call. 
Help us to see our time as valuable and short. A time to be used for your honor and glory as we point others to Christ and help them to know you too. We ask it in Jesus' name.